You're listening to Second on the Mount, a podcast of sermons from Second Presbyterian Church, located on Mountain Avenue in Roanoke, Virginia. We are glad you found us. My name is Elizabeth Link, and I'm the executive pastor. Each week, we climb into the pulpit with a bit of fear and trembling. We hope and pray that what we have to say is true to God's will for the church and may encourage and challenge you on your journey of discipleship. Please rate and review if you enjoy. May the Spirit have some word for you in what we have to share. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Each of the four Gospels starts with something of an introduction, an encounter with John the Baptist, and then some form of calling of the first disciples. And then each marks the move to Jesus' ministry by describing a particular event. In the Gospel of Mark, the first thing Jesus does is cast out an unclean spirit, announcing his intention to stand against all that would keep the children of God from abundant life. In Matthew, the first major event of Jesus' public ministry is his Sermon on the Mount, where he teaches the crowds from the mountain and comes across as a Moses figure, bringing down commandments from the mountain. In Luke, Jesus first preaches, announcing his intention to heal and feed and release the captives and bring good news to the poor. First things matter. Here in John, the first thing Jesus does is go to a wedding. Hear these words from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, found on page 859 of your Pew Bible. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was working on my sermon this week while on the tail end of our daughter's COVID quarantine. I've lost count 
of how many times Chris and I have had to work in shifts while caring for our daughter during the pandemic. We've got the rhythm down, actually. Chris starts work at 6 a.m., and our day is spent in three-hour increments trading off work and childcare, work and childcare. And once Eleanor is in bed, we try to make up those hours of work that we missed until we head to bed ourselves to do it all again the next day. We have little room to complain, really. We just have the one child and a preschool that's been extra careful, and we both have jobs that can, for the most part, be done remotely. My sister-in-law and her husband, on the other hand, had 10 weeks of quarantine with their three young children between July of 2020 and August of 2021. That means their household, with two full-time working parents, one of whom is in healthcare and cannot work remotely, quarantined for nearly one-fifth of a year. I greatly value the health of my neighbor, and I know why quarantines are a necessary part of our lives for now. But I also understand why so many families are just plain worn out, exhausted. Our wells are dry. And so when I talk with parents, particularly those without grandparents or family backup nearby, I can hear the strain and worry in their voices. I know they are doing their best to be careful in this difficult season, not only for the health of their children, which is paramount, of course, but also for the sanity of their household. The pandemic has been hard on all of us. But there's an added layer of stress on families particularly with children who are too young to be vaccinated. And it's been building for nearly two years now. They have no wine, Mary says. I get it. Their cups are empty. There is no reserve left. Maybe this is why I chose John 2 for today. We are tapped out. And yet... Here in this gospel, as foreign as it feels at the moment, is a miracle about plenty, about abundance, about joy. It's the start of Jesus' ministry in John. Jesus, his mothers, and his disciples are at a wedding. Remember those? Where lots of people gather in one room to eat and drink together and to celebrate. Jewish weddings in those days were not light affairs. They went on for days. On the third day, at this wedding in Cana of Galilee, the party ran out of wine. At first glance, that doesn't sound so surprising. Three days means a lot of wine, and if it were a particularly thirsty crowd, we can imagine that they ran dry. Now, if this were to happen today, I might whisper sheepishly to a trusted friend and ask them to run to the store to pick up some more. But much like a modern family in quarantine, it's not that easy. You can't just run to the store and purchase more. And wine, in Jesus' day, wasn't just a social lubricant. It was a sign of the harvest, of God's abundance, of joy and gladness and hospitality. So when they run short on wine, they run short on blessing. Timing is everything. The wine has run out before the wedding has. It's a catastrophe. 
and Mary notices. She sees what's amiss. She perceives the high likelihood of scandal and humiliation brewing beneath the surface. Mary notices, and she registers concern before Jesus does. They have no wine. His mother tells him that it's time. This is the moment, Jesus. This is the hour. But Jesus says he isn't ready. My hour has not yet come, he tells her. On the third day at a wedding, on a third day at a tomb, no one is ever really ready. The scene at the opening of John is a foreshadowing of its ending. Perhaps Mary knows this, somehow, in the ways that mothers do. The Gospel of John doesn't include any infancy narratives, no angelic annunciations, no babe in a manger, no prophetic words or shining stars. But the Mary John describes still knows who her son is. She knows what he is capable of, and she also must know how the world might receive him. She knows he is more than her son alone. She knows the time has come for him to reveal what he can do. She sees a need, and she trusts that he alone can meet it. Looking back, with the whole gospel in view, we can see that this movement costs Mary. She has helped usher into motion on this third day at a wedding, what will end at the foot of a cross. My hour has not yet come. Of course he's not ready. Maybe he's reluctant to start the journey he knows could end in pain. Maybe he doesn't think that winemaking should be his first miracle. Maybe he doesn't want to draw attention to himself or interrupt the conversation he's having with his friends. Whatever the case, Mary is not deterred. She presses the need and points the servants to her son, do whatever he tells you. She nudges her son's ministry into motion. John tells us that behind the scenes, Jesus has the servants fill the ritual jugs with water. They fill these large ceremonial jugs all the way to the brim, some 180 gallons of it. Then Jesus tells them to draw out water and take it to the chief wine steward. The man takes a sip and declares, it's the finest wine they served yet. The party isn't over. In fact, it's just begun. In Mark, Jesus' first miracle is something really useful. He casts out a demon. He rescues a man from possession. Here in John, he turns water into wine. There's nothing really useful about this. It's a frivolous, superfluous gift. No one's life is saved. No one's future is changed, save maybe avoiding some major social embarrassment. Yet something incredible is revealed in this moment. It's not a revelation of awe or judgment, but a revelation, a miracle of abundance, surprise, and delight. Jesus' first miracle, his sign of abundance is revealing God's glory, and then follows the miracle that the disciples believed. This miracle, 
This sign points to God revealing God's self in Jesus. This is the kind of work God is about. It's more than a story about how great God is. It's also a story about how when God is revealed, there's laughter, astonishment, joy. This story is a reminder that what gets revealed is not always immediate. What you see is not always what you get. It's important for John to say that you save the best wine for last. It's an indication that the full glory of God you may think you see is only the beginning of things yet to be. There's a surprise and delight, but there's also a hope, a pushing forward and wonder. And it makes us want to ask, what is Jesus going to do next? John reveals that this is the kind of God we have, the kind of God who, once God starts doing something wonderful, doesn't know how to stop. There were other pitchers and containers around the party. Jesus didn't have to go for these monster ceremonial jugs, but he makes a choice to provide not just enough wine for one toast, but enough wine to fill six 30-gallon vats. It's a glimpse of the great wedding feast to come, where nothing will run out and everyone is welcome. For those of us who feel a great wedding feast with vats of wine may be too far from our imagination. This miracle is a reminder that when we, like Mary, have no idea how to turn gallons of water into gallons of wine, we do know how to speak up and say what is needed. Sometimes, when my well is dry, the only thing I know how to say is, there is need here. Everything is not okay. There is trouble. There is no more wine. It's hard business holding up the promise of God's abundance against the agony of scarcity and loss and exhaustion. These days I'm more acquainted with water than I am with wine. Many of us are, for honest. It doesn't matter what the particulars look like. Anxiety, depression, chronic illness, addiction, financial struggle, or systemic injustice, regardless of how we might rewrite Mary's line to meet our own circumstances, I imagine her words ring true for most of us in one way or another. There is no more wine. So where do we place ourselves in this miracle of plenty? As Debbie Thomas writes, Maybe we can be like Mary. Maybe we can notice, name, persist, and trust. No matter our circumstance, no matter how impossible the situation, we can elbow our way in, pull Jesus aside, and earnestly ask for help, and ready ourselves for action. We can tell God hard truths, even when we're supposed to be celebrating. We can keep human needs squarely before our eyes, especially when apathy, denial, and distraction are the easier options. And finally, we can invite others to obey the winemaker that we have come to know and trust. They have no wine. Do whatever he tells you. We live in the tension between these two lines.
May we live there with trust and confidence in the one whose help we seek. May we live there open to seeing, open to recognizing God's miracles and glory, revealed in simple, earthly human form. Because Jesus is with us. Jesus is good. And Jesus is Lord. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.